All right, what is going on, guys? It is time for another episode of the Chasing Waypoints podcast. A couple of weeks off. Man, this is getting, you know, this is starting to get tough. We've got bikes to work on, things to do, Turo, all these, you know, all these irons in the fire. But we are back. We're getting episodes done, and it is going to be a busy weekend. I plan on being on the microphone, and I think probably the entirety of tomorrow, Saturday. But uh, it is Friday. You guys are listening to this on Sunday morning, hopefully with a cup of coffee or choice beverage. I mean, it's it's noon somewhere. And some of you guys uh, all the way from Europe and all sorts of parts of the world. We, I think we've officially hit 100 countries, which is absolutely insane. Uh, yeah, I remember starting rambling about uh, an 850 and a 790. Had a friend listen to the first episode, uh, not <laughs> a few, uh, maybe a couple weeks ago now. I'm like, it's been a lot of changes in the show. I go, yeah. But anyway, we are having fun. It is all sorts of good times. Rally events going off. Baja Rally School just went off. I absolutely missed that one, and it absolutely sucked. Uh, but I had to do it. I got some stuff working, and I'm trying to figure out how this is all going to go down. But basically, I got to save my days off. Because this could be an epic start to the next year. That is all I'm going to say about that. I'm not going to jinx myself on it. But anyway, let's get to today's episode and what we have got going on here. Let's see if... uh, Let's go. Sending the link over to today's guest. If you guys read the the title, you know who's on the show today. It is none other than Jacob Argybright. I've got him uh, logging on here in just a second. I am keeping an eye on it. But yeah. Fresh off of Sonora, Deuced Racing, Dust Racing, and also the Dakar Rally. So we're doing the recap for both Dakar Rally and the Sonora Rally for Jacob Arribright. And all the stuff they got going on, man, he is all over the place. Seems like every time I am looking to get a hold of him, it's been a minute that we've been trying to get, get together and do the recap show. And, well, we finally got a hold of him. Busy racing schedule and everything is going on. So let's turn the party down. I see he is uh, he is on here. Jacob, Victor, <laughs> what's going on, sir? Good morning. Good morning. No, not much. Just getting up and getting going. How about you? Uh, same. Been going since uh, since five a.m. <laughs> yep. Well, you're you're an early riser too, though. Yeah. yeah I mean, you kind of have to be for rally, but uh, the older <laughs> I get, the earlier I get up and. Honestly, I went to bed at like eight thirty last night. I was tired. Isn't it? Isn't it weird how that works? It's like as you you get older, the bedtime starts going earlier as well. <laughs> yeah, and I just I just don't care. But I I like to be up early, and like no one else or less people are up, and you just get more things done. So no shame. No, none at all. You know, it's interesting. It was uh, I. Admittedly, I'm a bit of a workaholic, and when I finally put a stop to it and turned my schedule around to like what you're saying, waking up, you know, four by four in the morning, I try and be up and, and ready to go. And mm-hmm. it's completely different. It's like the last thing I do in my day is go to work. And yeah, it just makes such a big difference. You know, you actually feel yeah. a little bit more accomplished. And meanwhile, listeners are going, Oh hell no. Yeah. Well, you know, it's, <laughs> it's not for everybody, but no, like I said, no shame. And it's, it's just, I, I, like I said, the older I get, I, uh, I just don't care. And I like to do things my way. Yeah. Well, there you go. Then, uh, and, and speaking of early mornings, you had about 15 of those at the beginning of the year. 
I did. Oh man. And they were the best <laughs> slash worst early mornings I've ever had. Oh man. So let's, let's talk Dakar 2023. What, what, what day did you ship out there? What time did you head out? Um, so I shipped out the day after Christmas, you know, so I was on the Desco team and my friend and teammate Ace Nielsen was also on the desk team. Uh, he had left, you know, a little bit before Christmas and he was training it in Dubai. I thought about doing that, but I was still kind of fundraising, getting the last of my things. And my plan was to train all the way on my bike here and leave the day after Christmas, which I did. And I ended up getting to, uh, Jetta. Well, it was like a day later and I pretty much had a day to kill. And I took the, uh, the hour flight to Yanbu and I got there, I think on the 29th of December. Okay. So man, it, it, it's a little bit of a production traveling there. Yeah. You know, I, uh, I had never been really to the middle East other than Dubai and, and, um, the UAE. And so even before that, I, you have this kind of, not this notion of how people are going to be, but honestly, you know, getting there, people were really nice. I, I had a pretty smooth travel day. So I was actually going to fly economy. Um, I was on the same flight as Mason, um, and a couple of the other ARO guys. Uh, I was looking at the Saudi airlines app and Mason's mom, uh, messaged me and she's like, Hey, you should try to upgrade the business. And this was the morning of the flight. So I'm like, okay, you know, I'll look like, see, you know, we'll see what happens. Well, there's a bidding system. You can just bid an amount to, you know, to upgrade the business. And on the scale, the lowest amount you could do was like 800 bucks. And so I bid 800 bucks to upgrade the business. And I was like, there's no way this is going to take, you know, on the scale, Mm -hmm. it says like your quality of bid. And it said low, it said something like low or like not very good. And I'm like, yeah, there's no way this is going to work. And of course it did. (laughs) As I'm getting getting to the airport, I get the email that I got upgraded to a business. I'm like, I'm super stoked. I can't believe it. I got upgraded for less than a thousand dollars, you know, on a 15 hour flight, you know, to business. So I'm like, you know, already on cloud nine, I get there. I started talking to the guys and it sounds like they spent a lot more to, uh, to upgrade so i'm like you know i've acted a little bit cocky i'm like yeah (laughs) (laughs) so sorry i was gonna say thanks to mason's mom for for letting me know that i was like i I couldn't believe it honestly i was prepared to fly economy you know so i was you know i was risking it but i'll probably do it again because if i fly the same saudi airlines like yeah i'll I'll do it again you know but uh no the flight over there was fine it was i mean it was pretty nice and relaxed in business. And, um, yeah, you know, like on the airplane, the Saudi airlines, they only had certain movies cause it was a pretty Saudi esque company, mm-hmm. you know? And as we were flying over Mecca, all the screens turned, turned to prayer time, you know, to offer a prayer and, you know, it's just, uh, just a different cultural experience to say the least. Yeah. That's awesome. I mean, and you know, it's funny. It's, of all of these things, right, the, all of the experiences and all of the rally, there's all these like micro experiences. So just to say you went to the Dakar 
it's not just saying you went to the Dakar. You lived all of these little experiences, all of these little different things. I, I had no idea they did that uh, over Mecca. That's pretty cool. Yeah, and you know the the little experiences are are make up so much of it, and it's not even during the rally. It's like before just getting to Dakar. You know, I spent like a year getting there, and I'm like, I'm in the process of doing it again. It's like it's literally a lifestyle of little experiences to go and spend two weeks racing a dirt bike. It's, uh, I mean, it's pretty crazy. Yeah. Well, I mean, and, and let's talk a little bit about the journey to get there. Obviously it wasn't, uh, you know, it, it was hard fought. It's not, you know, it's like, it's really two events. It's the journey to the Dakar to get there. And then it's the Dakar itself. What were, what were some of the things like, what was the biggest help? What was the biggest, like, what are the biggest, and now focusing on getting there, what's the biggest thing that you have to do? Like, Honestly, it's just it's just getting the funds to get there. You know, they say the hardest part about Dakar is just getting there, mm-hmm. and it, you know it is true. Um, you know, I did a bunch of fundraising, and you know, I'm pretty fortunate to have a lot of friends and have a little bit of you know status in the racing world, which I appreciate. And you know, like you just it, it's it's just a grind. You know, I I tell people like I used to race more in the states at a top level. And I pretty much took off the last year just to fundraise and focus on getting there, you know, which is a, which is a big lifestyle change for me. And, um, you know, you're just always grinding, like selling t-shirts, trying to do different things, do a fundraiser, uh, you know, look for sponsors. And it just, it's, it's literally like a full-time job to try and get there, especially, especially your first time, you know, you have to do all these things that, that just suddenly pop up and, you don't have the experience until you actually do the event. And and it's not that it's hard. It's just, you've never done it. Mm-hmm. You know, like, I mean, it's not, it's not a big thing, but like I didn't have my motorcycle license. Like I had to go do that. And so that, you know, it takes a weekend cause in California you have to do either a test or the, the motorcycle safety course. So I opted to do the safety course, which is, you know, 500 bucks. And then you have to go take the test. And it's just little things like that that just add up and, you know, uh, just take time to get there. And, you know, I'm, I'm kind of planning my fundraising now for this year and I'm trying to figure out a more sustainable model because like, I want to go for the future. You know, I'm trying not to sell my soul and everything I have to get there. So you know, I'm trying to explore some different routes to get there and, you know, figure, figure out, you know, like I said, ways to get there without selling my soul. Yeah. Well, I mean, yeah, and it's, um, and we'll talk, uh, we'll talk like if it was a salary range, but I mean, more or less, right? Because so you went on, you were with a team, supported on a team, you went there. What does that kind of look like now that you have the numbers after the dust is settled? For as far as cost, yeah. If you if you could for me, yes, yeah, no, it's cool. It's uh, it was around seventy five grand. Okay, that so, is. Um, I, honestly, and it was a great package. I love the Dusco guys. You know, now that I've been around and I've seen different teams, I still choose to be with them. They're awesome. They're from Poland. Smaller group of guys, but they're organized. And, um, you know, it, we'll, I'm sure we'll get into the Sonora thing, but, you know, they came over here and, like, we just talked a bunch. And it seems like, you know, we're just forming a nice nice little team and we're, we're staying in our lane and doing our thing. Nice. That's cool. And I mean, and, and the bike you were on, I mean, it was a uh, uh, 20 or 21 uh, RFR or what was it? 
Yeah, you know, I don't even know the year. It's the current current model. Not, I'm sorry, it's not the current model anymore with the new bike out. Mm-hmm. But it's it's either twenty or twenty one. Um, just a stock RFR with uh, springs in the suspension from TBT suspension, mm-hmm. and just some graphics. Nice. So how? All right. So you know, you, the fundraising part of it, the journey over there, the travel over there. Um. It's interesting that you mentioned TBT. How did I'm I'm a total nerd when it comes to the motorcycle stuff. I like just tinkering. I, I know how to wrench on them better than I know how to ride them, which eventually I'll make <laughs> it up to, <laughs> to get some classes. Yeah, actually, I, <laughs> let's do it. Yeah. So how you're going to go halfway across the world. You're going to go ride a bike competitively and, and you're obviously you're an extremely competitive rider. How do you prepare like Okay, what what did you and the guys at TBT come up with as far as the suspension package for this thing so it would feel a little better? Well, so I will say, out of the box, the RFR is the best stock bike I've ever ridden. It's the most... It's the most, like, directed bike towards what it's intended use. You know, if you buy a normal bike here, the KTM bikes are made kind of for Supercross, but we ride them off-road. But that bike is sole purposes rally, and it's the best bike I've ever ridden out of the box, hands down. It's got everything you need, you know, but the problem is it's expensive to get here, and it's hard to get here. Um, so the last time I rode it mm-hmm. was actually at the Abu Dhabi Desert Challenge, which was a little bit over a year before the Dakar. So I hadn't ridden the bike in the year. Mm-hmm. So um, knowing that to prepare all we really had time for and to do, because I like the bike, like I said, stock Mm -hmm. was I, we basically just sprung it for my weight. You know, I'm a little bit heavier. I'm like 210 pounds. So I'm a bigger guy. Um, and the, the stock springs are, you know, obviously too light for me. So all we did, like I said, was TBT shipped me with some strings. We went over to the WP, uh, truck and they installed them for us, which, you know, looking back, I think it was a good, good solution. I actually have the Desco bikes here. So I'm going to do a little bit more testing with some parts and some, some suspension mm-hmm. because after spending that long on the bike, like I, I picked up a lot of things that were, that I can make better. Mm-hmm. Um, but like I said, for, for not riding the bike a year and, you know, just putting in the Springs, I, I loved it. It, the terrain over there, is smoother than the states mm-hmm. you know if you go any to any of the deserts here they're they're chop not choppy they're just rougher you know more people ride so it's not it's not as big a deal but um yeah yeah so it's it's a little bit more pristine because i mean here i just got off the door the last event i rode out here was the socal rally and it was sand and whoops i mean that's the not that it was a lot of it there was a lot around it but you and as i said i mean you just you can't ride for a distance anywhere here in socal without hitting sand and whoops it's just it is what it is so not not the terrain over there yeah not quite i mean it's sand you know it's it's sand rocks and big open desert in saudi which the desert over there is really really beautiful Mm -hmm. um it's just it's just smoother you know it's just it's just smoother. Like I said, over here, it's just more people riding and, you know, you got roads, you got sand dunes, you got sand rocks. It's just, just a little bit nicer to ride. Nice. 
a little more a little more pristine or or not as not as beat up well i mean the i mean in socal right it's the 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 world center of off-road <laughs> i feel like. yeah and actually i mean yeah and you know we take it for granted like we're pretty fortunate i was riding the other day i'm like man we have really good desert even if it's clapped out like i don't care i do all my road books or a lot of them in lucerne where it's hooped out and i just i don't care all right we're pretty fortunate yeah. Okay, so I'm not doing any of your road books until I learn how to write no, books. <laughs> no, no, no. I, I, I have some for me mm-hmm. that I use that that are just tricky. I don't care where I go, and then I have some for other people that want to have a good time and maybe see some scenery and and not and not uh you know do hoops. Yeah. So I have both. <laughs> yeah, because those those can be a bit <laughs> of a handful worry. on a on a rally bike. Well, okay. So have you have you taken the rally replicas on any of those? I mean, are you, well, so, you know, after Sonora, we got the bikes, mm-hmm. um, they left them here. There's three here. I took one out. I actually went and raced a local district 37, uh, dual European scramble, mm-hmm. which if, if you don't know, it's, um, like a six to 10 mile course, you do four or five laps. It's about 45 minutes to an hour. And I did two of them. Mm-hmm. So I went out to my local desert, did a couple desert races, um, and yeah, you're, you're right. It, it, it's a big bike in the hoops, but I wanted to get some testing and just see how it handled out in the desert. But so yeah, I've ridden it there, and I I, I approve of the bike. Okay, so it's got the stamp of approval. Yes. So okay, well, let's go. I mean, Dakar for you was. I mean, you put you put some results. I mean, you were there. What's uh, tell us about the adventure? What was that? What was that like? What were the stages like? What was that all about? Uh, so, you know, getting off the plane, getting there, we, I got into the, uh, the bivouac, what they call C camp at the, you know, at the start at about 11 PM. I think it was, like I said, the 29th. Um, and you get there, you go through the big, there's a big Dakar arch, you know, that's 20, 30 feet high and you go under it and you just see this massive conglomerate of, of everything. And it's a, it's a sight to see. I was pretty mind blown. I had a little bit of jet lag because I had slept, I had slept on the plane, which I usually don't do. I think it was because I flew business. I was just, I was just all around excited. I don't think I went to bed until like five in the morning. You know, I was just, I got to sea camp. I was looking around. They don't tell you how many, what I call the garbage trucks. Mm-hmm the the big race trucks there are i mean there's there's so many and it's just everything is on a grand scale so i'm there i'm you know i'm full of energy i'm like this this camp is amazing you know there's so many things to see and yeah i didn't i don't think i went to bed till like five and you know i um met the team saw them and the first day i think i think we had to go right into tech so we get there and honestly that that and scrutineering was the most nerve wracking for me. And I'm not sure why I think it's you travel halfway across the globe to do this race and you want to make sure you have everything and you've never actually been there. Um, but luckily I was organized, got through tech and scrutineering just fine. No big deal. You know, they do, they do photos of you, which is cool because they use them for the world rally posts and you know, you're just busy. You know, it's, if you've raced like best in the desert, it's similar to that. You just got to do a lot of things and it seems like the time goes, uh, goes very quickly. Nice. And 
So after that, uh, I guess we want to get into stages. Well, actually, and I was going to ask you, so, okay, from my experience at the score stuff and some of the scrutineering is usually a pretty basic thing. All right. You got water. Yeah. Med kit, you know, sap phones, uh, all your nav equipment, you know, the rally comp scrutineering. I mean, th- you're talking about, uh, uh, if nobody's in line in 20 minutes, you're done. I have a feeling that's not how it is over there. This sounds like much more of a process. Yeah. And they kind of, they organize you. So you have a certain time to go. So like it was me and ACE, we had different times. They were like within 10 or 20 minutes of each other. Mm-hmm. And you kind of, you, you go as a team, they organize it. So you're there at a certain time, but yeah, I mean, if there's nobody there, then you can get through pretty quickly. Um, but there's, you know, hundreds of competitors. So it's busy and it's, it's, it's very well organized. There's just a lot to do. I mean, I remember, I think there were 17 different stations with like little numbers you had to go through. So it's, it's quite the process. Damn. <laughs> and you know, you know, and, and the other thing too is they speak English, but the organization is French. So there's a little bit of a, of a language barrier, which is always, you know, kind of fun to play around with and, you know, try to, if you don't have something or they they're asking you for something and you can't understand, mm-hmm. that's always a little fun. It takes a little bit to get used to. Yeah. Yeah. And having, I mean, and I'm thinking 17 stations. I mean, what are they asking you for? <laughs> yeah, you know, it's, it, you know, two of them, one, one was the video service and one was the photo service where you check in. So it's, it's literally everything. And, you know, like I wasn't even going to do the video, but I'm glad I did, which was another $800. But, I'm super glad I did it because now I have the video of my first Dakar. That's awesome. I mean, that, that, yeah. that, that's priceless. And I mean, and they're pretty good quality too. It's not like, you know, it's not cell phone recordings from the, no, <laughs> it's awesome recordings. And like, I didn't realize this, but then they follow you with the helicopter and which is, you know, it's, it's an awesome feeling. Like you get to, you know, pin it in front of the helicopter and you know, Saudi Arabia, you know, it's, it's definitely priceless in the middle of nowhere headed for the sunset. Yeah. Yes. Nice. A little bit of goosebumps there. That I, I can picture that. I think that's a that's got to be pretty cool. As fast as these RFRs will go. Yeah, and you know, like doing all the signups and just going through everything. I'm, I was definitely not on edge, but I was alert and not not as calm and cool and collected as I wanted to be because it's it was my first time and it's like it's just so much to take and I literally. You know, like I was saying about how, how grand and awesome the the first bivouac was, I'm acting like a little schoolgirl and I'm like, I gotta calm down and I'm like I gotta be kind of stoic here and get into race mode. But it's it's hard to. Yeah. Yeah. So I can I mean, I'm at so many things going on and I mean just even the bivouac, you know, kind of cutting back in Sonora, but just even the bivouac from one year to the next, right? From before the FIFIM was there, FIAFIM versus them being now this last event there's a big change in the bivouac it just feels different there's more teams it's just i can and and this is just a little taste of what you see at the dakar i imagine yeah yeah like going to sonora it's definitely you know i i'd only been there one year 2020 i think until now it's definitely grown in sonora but it's definitely it's definitely just a small sliver of dakar that's for sure of the dakar stages so Okay, we said sunsets, chasing the sunset, or, or speeding off into the sunset uh, stages. What I mean, what is that like? What are they? Uh... Well, 
so the first day was just a prologue. Mm -hmm. Um, and actually even before that, I only got one day to ride. So you, you know, you go out and do the, um, the testing loop. Mm -hmm. And like I said, I hadn't ridden the bike for the year. So I pretty much spent the whole day just doing the testing loop. I tried to take as much time as I could. I ended up doing like a hundred kilometers on this. I forget what it was. It was like a 10 kilometer road book. So I did quite a, quite a few K's just trying to get used to the bike. And honestly, I, um, I took the time the first couple of times to go slow and understand the road book because what, one of the things I learned was th what they say is, is considered a road over there versus here is very different. You know, it could be two cars that have gone over the same tracks and they call that a road over here. If you're in the desert, a road is like a graded road and you know, it's a road. Yeah. So even, even before I started, I was trying to learn things and I'm like, okay, a, a road is not what I'm used to you know, over here in the States. And that's like one of the differences in our deserts, you know, being more used, like the roads, like I said, are well-defined over there, not so much. And, um, you know, in the testing loop, it was, it was definitely burned in. I learned a couple things. And honestly, after I learned, I just, I was just focusing on the bike, you know, it was, it was probably the roughest part of the whole, the whole rally, you know, just trying to get the bike good and stuff. And, mm -hmm. So yeah, felt pretty good. Um, the, the prologue, my first, I will say I'll take ownership. I did not walk or ride or mountain bike the uh, prologue, which ended up hurt, hurting me um, because I started the prologue and, you know, as you, you get going down this, it looks like a GP track. It's this graded, you know, road they have that makes a track. I ended up, going wide open in the first 400 meters there was a sharp right turn and not walking it i didn't know um i basically ended up going way way too fast into it mm -hmm. laid the bike down slid into the berm inflated my airbag and uh had my first dad car crash in the first 400 meters of a oh. stage <laughs> so <laughs> luckily everything yeah everything was good i was just like really you know, as, as even before I laid it down, I'm just like, you, you idiot. And, um, but as soon as I got up, I felt better. I was like, all right, well, that's out of the way. Like, let's keep going. And so, you know, I, I finished the prologue, had no more falls and I, everything was good. I don't know what I finished. You know, I was like, I don't know, between 20 and 30. No, I think it was worse than that, to be honest. I don't remember, but, um, yeah. So I get back, you know, a little bit of embarrassment. Um, I actually had a talk. I just had passed Johnny Campbell, uh, mm -hmm. after the prologue and we had, he had a little heart to heart with me. He was like, what are you doing? Like, like you're, you know, not, not that you're better than that, but like you got so many days, like you could have ended it. And, uh, so I took it to heart a little bit and come to find out a couple people had crashed in that same corner. I think Nacho had crashed in that corner and a couple other people. So, made me feel a little less bad but you know i'm still kind of kicking myself for that little mistake there yeah and um so yeah started the first day nothing nothing major to report i it was it was awesome you know i had a lot of emotion you know you leave you know you leave early in the morning and i i don't remember how long it was but you're on the, the liaisons are a you know big portion of rally 
and uh you know just enjoyed the scenery and you know did the first stage i i definitely rode reserved um i was making sure my navigation was good you know just kind of getting a feel for things you know i i ended up seeing you know sam sunderland you know down on the ground the first 50k so i'm like you know it it can it can end you know in an instant so um you know, got through my first stage. I, I, I was, uh, in the thirties, which to be honest, I was a little surprised I'd be that far back, mm-hmm. but you know, I just, I said, all right, like day one's done, you know? And my plan was just to try and get faster every day and push a little bit more and, you know, just get through the whole thing. And, um, the second day was better. I was, uh, I was riding with Jean Lou Lapon and Romain Dumontier mm-hmm. and you know, so I kind of tagged onto them and I, you know, pushed a little bit more. We ended up coming across, I don't remember who it was, uh, our first crash, you know, he thought he ended up, uh, breaking his leg. So we stopped, uh, you know, put our bikes down, used the, uh, the Erie check to call for the helicopter, which I will give kudos. It's the coolest thing I've ever seen. Um, I feel like it's what racers in the States would like for safety as far as desert racing, or that's what the goal is. So basically how it works is there's a phone, there's a, I don't want to say a phone, there's a device on the bike. Mm -hmm. Uh, if, if the bike is down, um, and I, I hope I'm saying this right after a certain amount of time, the, the organization will either call the bike or eventually they will send somebody out. Mm-hmm. But, you know, we stopped with this person. We, we, uh, we heard someone call the device and we basically talked to the organization and said, Hey, this rider's down. You know, they kind of assessed the damage and what, you know, what they needed to do. And within 10 minutes, there was a helicopter there. And it was like, you know, it was movie style. They came in swinging the tail around and landed and, you know, ran over to, to help this person. Mm-hmm. So, to get somebody there within, you know, 10 or 15 minutes, which is an incredible response rate, especially in the middle of, you know, Saudi or in, you know, in the middle of nowhere. So, you know, got, got him, uh, got him situated, me, me and Romain, uh, left. And after that, we were just kind of a, not a sober ride, but, uh, we just, we just finished. We didn't have that much to go, but we were just kind of reminded of the dangers and, you know, ended up finishing. Um, and so my next mistake was we were there for about 11 minutes. Uh, remain ended up getting credited 11 minutes of his time. Mm -hmm. And I ended up getting, it was either five or six minutes, five or six minutes, excuse me. Mm -hmm. I, I saw it on the results and I was thinking, I don't, I don't know why I got less because I was riding with him. Mm -hmm. I think it's, personally i and i don't know this to be true i think it was because i ended up moving my bike which triggered my gps um to to make room for the helicopter and block the trail you know for this rider mm-hmm. we we tried to get the the rest of the five or six minutes back because i want you know i want my full 11 minutes like i don't yeah. i don't want you know half and we ended up trying I think they ended up reviewing it. I'm not sure what happened, but I wish we had ended up fighting harder because uh, I remember the next day 
I was just like, you know, it's, it's only five minutes. I have so much more to go. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm just going to put my head down, but you know, in hindsight, that five minutes ended up putting me farther up in the results, but you know, that's okay. And so, um, yeah, got through the day. We started day three, uh, day three was good. You know, some weather came in. Mm-hmm. I remember there was a little bit of weather on the liaisons and what they don't tell you about Dakar is I think the liaisons are the most sketchiest part of the whole rally. The racing is super safe. <laughs> the li- Which is like crazy. The race- but yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, it's totally, I, I don't know if I can cuss. It's totally ass backwards. Like yeah. the racing, it feels after seeing the response, I'm like, Oh yeah, I'm good. I can send it. But on the liaisons, you know, you're on asphalt. It's early in the morning. There's, you know, normal people doing their thing. And I mean, hopefully I don't get in trouble, but I just feel like in rally, when you are on the road, you kind of, you have to take responsibility, but you have a license to do whatever you want on the highway. Mm -hmm. And so I will say I, I saw some sketchy things on the, on the liaisons. So Larry, Larry so, filled us in. I mean, I, I, I heard it from, from Larry, the, uh, Mason's dad, that the liaisons are no joke. It is scary. Like, yeah. you know, driving four wide on a two lane highway because they felt like they needed to pass each other. And this is just local traffic. I'm not even talking about racers. Like racers are the best behaved kids on the road in comparison to what I heard. And it makes me think like, okay. And, and people say that driving in Mexico is bad. Yeah. I mean, I don't, I mean, I might disagree with we're the most well behaved, but <laughs> as far as we're concerned, in but, comparison, but but if you you know if you screw up, you have to you you have to take responsibility. Like it's you're risking it, you know. So um, yeah. So yeah, liaisons are sketchy. They're also they're also fun. Like you see a lot of cool scenery. There's a lot of cool things. Um, a little bit of weather starting day three. Mm-hmm. I get to the stage, you know, it's rocky. It's awesome. It, it, it rained. So basically I had a burned in track and I remember day three was my favorite day. It was a lot like the desert here, just rock, sand, just open desert, Mm -hmm. just really, really pretty stuff. Um, I ended up getting to the first gas stop and I was filling up both tanks. I ended up switching to my front tanks. And as soon as I switched to my front tanks, I had an issue. Like it, the bike wouldn't run. I couldn't figure out why it only ran on the rear tanks. So I was like, shit, I don't know what I'm going to do here. Yeah. So I basically ran from the first gas stop to, I think it was the second checkpoint on my rear tank, mm-hmm. which by the time I got there, I, I was doing the math in my head. I was like, I'm pretty much going to run out here. So I stopped at the second checkpoint. And, you know, I, I, I figured I'd stop there because I'm not going to go just run out in the middle of nowhere. Like I'm a, at least I'm going to run, you know, yeah. stay here with the checkpoint. So I stop, I try to assess everything. I ended up taking the front tanks off and basically pouring them into the rear tank mm-hmm. and not having the bike for a year. I've never worked on a RFR. Mm-hmm. So it definitely took me longer than I wanted. You know, I ended up, 
because like I said, I had never taken the bike apart. I ended up ripping the fuel lines on the front tanks on the bottom apart uh, because I, I didn't know there was a connector there. Mm-hmm. So live and learn. Yeah. I ended, I, I met, I don't, I don't remember his name. I think his name was Lawrence and it wasn't, it wasn't Lawrence hacking. It was, I think his name was Lawrence and he was from Canada. Mm-hmm. He ended up knowing Mason and he was just a, just a rally guy. And he was just there helping. He, he ended up kind of coaching me through, you know, taking off the tanks. So I took off the tanks, poured it into the rear and, you know, put the front tank back on. And I, and by that time I'm like 45 minutes down, you know, I wish, like I said, I wish I knew what I was doing, but I didn't. So, uh, yeah, I get going, I get to the next checkpoint and they stop the race. So they stopped the race because of the weather and yeah. 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 So if the weather's too bad and they can't fly the helicopters, they don't really want to race because then they can't get anybody if there's an issue, which, you know, part of me is like, you know, that's, that's for wussies, but Mm -hmm. the other parts, like I understand, you know, they're, we're racing at a very high level and they want to, you know, get people out, which is fine. So, um, we, you know, we, they, they stop all of us. And by this time, Paul Neff catches me, uh, a couple other people, my, uh, my Danish friend, Thomas. And so we're all just sitting there waiting. And as we're sitting there, the sun kind of goes away and these clouds start rolling over us. And, uh, you know, it looks like pretty terrible weather is coming. And at the end of that day, I think we had a two hour liaison to, uh, where was it? I think it was Riyadh. Mm-hmm. I, th- I think, I think that's where it was. Well, so they have, they have us wait there. They say, the stage is done. We're all going to get on the highway and we're going to add, uh, 45 minutes to this two hour liaison, you know, to, to get to camp. Mm-hmm. So when you get to a checkpoint, which is where we were there, you go, you're in a speed zone. And if you're in a speed zone, your tracker will beep at you. Mm-hmm. You know, if you're going too fast, well, when you're done with the speed zone, you hit a waypoint and it turns off the, the speed zone and you can, you know, resume, resume speed. Well, since we're in the speed zone, they tell us to basically go left on the highway. None of us validated the waypoint. And so basically we're doing a 130 kilometers an hour on the, on the highway with everybody's tracker, you know, going screaming at us, what, you know, with, with these beeps. Mm -hmm. So that was the first thing I remember. Uh, is, you know, just doing this two hour liaison with, with everyone's beeper, just wide open. Uh, Well, if I had, if I had finished the stage, there was a, a service point where my team would have been mm -hmm. to give me some clothes to, you know, get on the, to, to get on the liaison. So after the race, you know, if if you're on the highway, you kind of cool off and it it gets cold on the highway, like with the wind and everything. Mm -hmm. Well, since I had never reached it, none of us did. Um, we, none of us had jackets. And so to fix that, the organization gave us these really cheesy green trash bags. So we're all covered in these green cheesy trash bags to try, try and, um, you know, keep us warm. Our beepers are going off. And then all of a sudden halfway through, you know, it starts pouring rain. And so, oh yeah. And even worse, have enough gas to make it to the, or at least at that time, I thought I didn't have enough gas to make it to 
the end of the liaison. Like I, I thought I needed to stop somewhere because I had spilled gas. I just didn't think I didn't have enough. So I'm on the highway with everybody. Our beepers are going off. It's pouring rain. I remember being really, really cold and I'm shivering and I'm thinking, shit, like, I, I don't think, I don't think I have enough gas. I don't see any gas station. Like we're, you know, we're in the big open desert and I'm thinking, oh shit, like I'm going to be here for a while. If, if I run out, I'm going to be really, really cold. And you know, but it's like three in the afternoon. I'm thinking, oh crap, like this could be a long day. Well, you know, it starts pouring even more. We're going through the canyons on the road and it's a really, it's really beautiful. We, we end up getting, um, into the bivouac. Luckily I made it on gas. I get warm. I, I figured out that somehow I had crushed the front left fuel pump. I either cased something or hit it. I basically disintegrated the front fuel pump. So that was, ended up being my issue on the front tanks. Ah, okay. Um, yeah. So but luckily, you know, we have another one. The team's awesome. As soon as I get in, I just drop the bike off. I go get warm. They fix the bike. And, um, after, after that, it was kind of a blur, to be honest. I, uh, between four, four, five and six, I remember just riding better, just enjoying the scenery, you know, nothing, nothing stood out. And by that point, I kind of had, had something happen every day. So I'm like, I just want smooth days at this point. Mm -hmm. Uh, and you know, I, I think it was stage seven, they, you know, that was the day they, another day they canceled. Mm-hmm. They, um, yeah, cause of the lakes. they ended up, yeah, cause of the lakes. And they ended up just having us do just this big, long liaison. And you know what, you know, like I said, liaisons are the sketchiest part. What they also don't tell you or what people try and tell you, but you don't know until you do it is they are so cold. When you get, when you get to Yanbu mm-hmm. or, or, or the other side of the continent, it's warm. Like it's not, it feels like home or like California for me. But when you start the liaisons, you know, at four or five in the morning and there's wind chill and it, there's no sun, it's cold. And I, thankfully through Andrew Short and Skylar and Mason, everybody, they kept hammering me on how cold it is. I ended up bringing a snowmobile onesie. Nice. <laughs> and it sounds like that's what saved your ass. <laughs> oh, did I lose you? I think I might have lost him. I should have like a technical difficulty thing. But this is this is interesting. I'll wait for him to, to come back on here in just a second. But I've heard uh I've heard a few things. Why did it uh no, I'm not done recording. All right. So this it's interesting because I've had I've heard from a few people now that oh, let me mute. I've heard from a few people now that it seems like the um like the fuel system, the fuel thing in the on the rally replicas is is kind of delicate 
And I guess there's certain parts to the system that are very finicky with even a dust particle, like one-way valves not working properly and stuff like that. I know Mason had problems uh, with fueling. I think that ended up being a harness. But there seems to be a lot that revolves around that particular system on the rally bike, which is interesting. Uh, I mean, obviously, KTM's got it figured out, and they, they you know, switch parts. They do all of this stuff. Um, and, and I just think it could be, you know, it just could, in the end, be dumb luck. But it's... Uh, it seems to be a common theme. I mean, and we've heard in the past too with the organization where they accidentally or uh, inadvertently ended up getting contaminated gas that had water in it and then that causing issues as well. So, I mean, it's it seems like everything fuel has uh, has some stuff to to kind of you got to watch out for, which is which is interesting to hear. But it was good to hear that he that it was a, a fuel pump issue and it was able to get to get fixed. Jacob, you back? Yes. Sorry yeah. about that. My uh, my mom called me. I couldn't figure out how to turn it off. Sorry about that. <laughs> no worries. No worries. The, so yeah, I was just I, I was just kind of talking about it. It seems like the fueling on the rally bikes, the RFRs, seems to be a thing. Um, I mean, in this case, for for you, what you figure out, it, obviously, it was the fuel pump, which I still wouldn't know how you could smash it, but uh, or or damage it. But it, I've heard of one way valves, or there's like a splitter <laughs> valve in there that also, if that gets dirty. You know, if it gets even a piece, a grain of sand, it, it can cause wreak havoc in the system. So, yeah, there's there's quite a few things. Like, you know, they're pretty sturdy bikes, but honestly, they're a little delicate. Like, to to your point, the the front fuel pump is directly under or above the skid plate where the bottom pickup is. So, if you case it, yeah, you can you can crush it. And you have to be a little bit delicate. And I think what you're talking about, I think Ace ended up having that issue where a little bit of sand got in. And I, you know, I gotta I gotta learn this for myself. But I think it either drains the fuel or the, yeah, there there can be an issue there. Yeah, my uh, I think now that I remember, I think what happens is is the fuel doesn't shut <laughs> off, so it overfills yeah, the back tank or something like that. And then, yeah. Yeah. And it just like drains out or something. It just goes wide open, I think. Mm-hmm. Which, uh, you know, you're out in a remote place. You might need that gas. And I feel like it's yeah, better yeah. in the tank than in the, on the desert floor. Um, okay. So where we, we left off uh, liaison, all the rain. Stage seven. Stage seven canceled. You guys did a big, long liaison. Now, let me ask you this before we go to these were in the early stages and, and your race, was there a moment where your brain went back to, okay, this, this is just another rally. This is just another race. I'm here to, you know, I'm here to put results and, and focus. Was there a, a moment in time where your brain just, you had that mind shift? You know, I don't know. I think, I feel like I was alert and pretty much on the whole time. You know, I, I, I woke up every day not needing coffee, I think because I was so mentally alert and just like, just go, 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 go. You know, I going back to, I was like a little schoolgirl. I'm just like, so excited to be there. I, I don't think I ever really shut off the whole time I was there. And, you know, that was good and bad. Even on the liaisons, I'm like super focused thinking about, you know, like I, I don't want to have an issue on the liaisons. I don't want to go the wrong way. So to answer your question, I think I was just wide open the whole entire time. And even the stages from the start to where I was kind of cautious to where I'm getting halfway through, mm-hmm. you're, you're going wide open. Like you ain't, you, you ain't messing around. Like it's hair and hound pace. You know, you're going wide, wide open. Mm-hmm. 
And yeah, <laughs> which is, I mean, that that's really crazy. So this is, you know, the, the technical side of it. So you could go wide open. You grew up in the desert here. You know how to read the terrain. You're getting to an area. You know that there's a corner coming up. You can see the breaking chop. There's, you know, there's, there's indicators that this is a corner coming up. You know, if it's maybe desert, you're not a hundred percent familiar with what's reading the terrain out there. Like, it sounds like it's all pristine. So it seems harder to, to gauge maybe or. Yeah. So a couple of differences is, you know, by the time I get there, you know, cause I'm starting in the teens to twenties, mm-hmm. it's burned in. You don't have to do a lot of navigating. I was really worried that the navigation was going to be really, really difficult, mm-hmm. but honestly, it's not that bad at least. And I heard this year wasn't that bad of navigation. Uh, you can pretty much follow the track. And, you know, if you're going down a straight track and then the next tulip is to turn right at a four way. Yeah. You, you kind of look ahead and you start to cut the corner, make sure there's no waypoint and you're, you know, trying to cut the corner. Mm-hmm. Um, where, where I don't know if I struggle or I'm just getting used to it is, you know, here in the States in the desert, if there's a rise or there's something coming up, we have signs, you know, they tell us to slow down or you just assume they didn't mark it and you kind of check up mm-hmm. over there. You trust the road book. And I actually learned this in, in Sonora, I was practicing it and I like it clicked a little bit more is if it doesn't say there's a danger in the road book, you do not let off like on a road mm-hmm. there. If there's rises, if there's slight rises and they either say one danger or there's nothing, you have to, you have to go wide open, you know, to, to make up that time. And, you know, it's, it's not a lot of time, but it's a couple seconds here and there. And if you do that over two hours, that's where you make up or lose a lot of time. So that's, you know, the, the issue at Sonora where on day three, people were hitting these, uh, these washouts, it kind of clicked for me because it was a totally smooth road that we're going to go wide open until you tell, tell us something is there. And mm-hmm. if you don't tell us something is there, then we're going to go wide open into these catastrophic, you know, things. And, and, and so, yeah, reading, I learned that at Sonora, but that was one of the things I could have done better is not letting off, you know, if there was nothing there, because over there, like I said, it's smoother and there's just not as much wear and tear. So you can hold it wide open, you know, longer and um yeah so that's that's a little bit more into bit reading yeah reading that terrain and that's how that's how you go faster at rally mm-hmm. so so this is uh so it's interesting i I think there was a there was a case that was made for road books being safer than gps tracks and a gps track is kind of the, i guess the same right it could be a wide open road that you're that you're riding and you're just following the line on the gps but you're on the road so you know it but where the road book comes in and why the road book would be safer is it's the assumption is, is there's no, no danger marked. Then that means you're good to go. Yeah. So. You know, I'm starting to believe that too. And even with, even with, um, marked courses, I think, you know, rally, rally terrain's a little bit smoother, a little bit faster than normal desert here. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's a little bit easier to mark, you know, there's, if you've ever raced a desert race here, there's millions of dangers and it's rougher. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm starting to agree with you that, you know, road books might be safer if they're verified and, you know, a proper person makes them. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think, I think they might be safer. I'm starting to believe that. Yeah. 
and I and, and you know it's interesting. I I saw well being in the in the operations room for uh, what did we uh, the PCO Peace Sonora. Control Office for Sonora. Yeah, I got to see how they how they create notes in road books, and I'm very surprised that they're not using like Rally Navigator. Um, I, the program they use, I, I basically see now that it's like Microsoft paint, but it's been rebranded. Uh, oh, it, is that, um, river notes, river notes. Yeah. And, and they kind of showed me, one of the guys showed me like, look, this is how we have to, cause it came up with, uh, Oh, the, the day in Sonora where they had to change the cap heading because yes. there was a, a mistake in the cap heading. It was funny because they asked, is like, okay, well, what would you do? You know, they asked me and then they asked the other guy that was helping uh, on tracking on the the uh, the world side. And I'm like, well, I'm going to follow the arrow because I know in Rally Navigator that, you know, the, it, the arrow is pointing to the next point. It automatically does that. You have to purposely go in and modify it if you want to. So the, the assumption is the arrow is correct and not the note, not the, yeah, not, so- not the cap heading, but not in their case. They have to draw I, everything. Okay. I'm I'm curious on River Notes because I make a lot of road books and I'm a big rally navigator guy. Mm-hmm. And obviously it's the, the best software out there. Yeah. On on the, the Sonora thing, I'll agree with you. You know, the, the issue was the cap was off. Mm-hmm. And I I mean, obviously I'm I'm pumped because I figured out the issue. Mm-hmm. But you basically you came to a four way and it said to head straight. And at that note, it was the end of the old tracks that we had used from the day before. Mm-hmm. So preceding that, it it would have been smoother. Mm-hmm. I knowing using Rally Navigator, if you yeah, what you were saying, if you drag a note or if you drag a point to the next next note, it literally points the arrow on your tulip the correct direction. Mm-hmm. Where I think I think they had an issue is they were making the roadbook and they had they had drug or dragged the the uh, point to somewhere, and it had. They basically clicked again and made a different point, and so it took the cap from the from the first direction. And I think that's where they had the issue. But using Rally Navigator and knowing the arrow is going to point you, I. I think that was a little bit of knowledge, so I agree with you, and yeah. I think it ended up helping me figure that out. Yeah, that makes sense. I know it's kind of hard to explain. No, yeah, and and that was the the from my understanding is the the cap heading was a remnant from it was the way that the course was going initially in when they did the recce on it when they designed it, but then mm-hmm. when they made the course change, they only changed one part of it and. I mean, it could it, at that point now knowing how they use like River Notes, how to make the roadbook, um, it it would have been fifty fifty. You know, yeah. if if I would have known, like, if I would know, oh, they use Rally Navigator to make it, then I would have been one hundred percent sure that the that the arrow was correct. But yeah. once I figured, once they showed me how they have to do it, and it's basically hand draw everything in the note, I was like, oh, dude, this was totally fifty fifty. So you could have gone with the cap and still would have been correct. Or you could have gone with the arrow and been correct based on that. Yeah. Yeah. Is, and, you know, the problem, sorry, the problem was yeah. you, then you had to go like four kilometers to the next point. So it's a long ways to, to verify if you're going the right way. Exactly. Yeah. Then, then becomes the game. Okay. Do I open the waypoint? Do I go back? Do I, you know, what do I, I, I was just in awe. Once I saw that, I'm like, dude, how do you like, how long does it take you to make a road book then at this point? Mm-hmm. 
because <laughs> I mean, it's like, I mean, in, in, in a few minutes you could, you can clear, I mean, it took me, I'm working on a project that I did, uh, roughly about 800 kilometers and in about two hours, mind you, this was just like basics, right? Not full decoration. It's just arrows at important intersections and things like that. And yeah, that was a couple of hours. I don't know how these guys do it with all the detail that they got to put into a road book. You know, you know, sorry, from <laughs> no. someone that likes to make road books, it takes me about an hour to do about 20 kilometers. And you just, you just got to get a process. And it's just like a kind of like a, a mind numbing task for me, like where I don't have to think I just, just work and like, yeah, it, yeah, it takes about an hour to do 20 kilometers. So yeah, it takes, takes quite a bit to, to make a road book. And even mine, mine aren't verified, you know, cause if I go and verify them, then I've written them and there's no, there's not as much dangerous. I'm only going off what I can see on the computer. Okay. That's, uh, I was like, okay, well, we got to get back to the, the Dakar stages, but I was going to ask you, do you, do you use a GPX file, like a previously written track that you have and then make it a road book or do you just wing it from, from the map? I, and we can get into this. I, uh, later, I, um, I wing it. I go to areas that I know, mm -hmm. and that's a little bit of a downfall because I know the area, but if I know where the boundaries are, I'll just pick stuff. And depending on what I'm feeling, I'm like, you know, let's make one that looks like a maze. Let's, let's just go back and forth. And I have, I have purpose with, with the road books I make and things I want to work on. Mm -hmm. But yeah, I just, I just kind of pick and choose where I want to go. If I want to go explore a new area, like sometimes I'll take a safe route there mm -hmm. and take a more difficult, tricky on the way back, you know, just because I don't know where I, I am in the desert trying to explore new areas. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I like to mix it up. Nice. Yeah, I mean, it's you have to get experience with different situations, notes. I mean, all these things. I'm thinking in my head, you know, even if you know where you're going, it's like, I don't know. I, I don't know if it would be worth like practicing that. I was like, okay, you randomly put in the road book somewhere. Uh, okay, at this point, your cap heading, your cap reader is no longer working. Or your Odo is malfunctioning. You know, like basically simulate something going off. And now you got to go like by which is crazy that people can do this is judge distance, you know, look and say, yep, that's a kilometer away and be pretty yeah. damn accurate at that. <laughs> you know, but that's what makes a really good rally racer. Like, uh, yeah, I'll do road books, short ones. Like I make them basic without, without a, um, you put all, you put the info there, but you hide either the cap direction or you hide the arrows. Like, so the arrows are all heading straight, but you just put a cap instead mm -hmm. of the arrow. Mm. And you can either cover your instruments. You, you can cover certain instruments. Like if you want to practice cap heading, you just cover your cap reader and try and figure it out, you know, and be aware of what direction you're heading. Mm -hmm. So yeah, there's, there's, you know, there's different techniques and stuff. And actually who taught me that and who's really, really good at it is uh, Jimmy Lewis. Yeah. I've, I've heard some of his drills and they could be pretty, uh, pretty challenging. <laughs> yeah. God, <laughs> he, he, he he made me, he made me want to just like, just quit. Like, I was just like, I don't know what I'm doing. He, I, I was feeling pretty confident. You know, I made a couple of road books for him and he thought they were good for never have, never having seen a Dakar road book. And I'm like, yeah. And then we go and do these drills and I'm just like, oh man, I have such a long <laughs> way to go, <laughs> but it's good. It's, it's, it's what I need. And you know, it's what's going to make you better. Yeah. True. Yeah. I mean, it's just experience, right? I mean, that's the, 
that's the name of the game on this. The more notes you get under your belt, I'm sure, it's the easier it gets to read them and, and go the distance. Yeah, but uh, yeah. So back to to Dakar. Yeah, I um, so second half, you know, the they canceled day seven, so we just did this long liaison. That was the first um, marathon stage. It was impromptu. Mm-hmm. I ended up not bringing uh, a tent. So they give you a big bag and you can take a tent. You can take, you know, your personal belongings. I ended up not taking a tent. I just took a mat. I slept in this big giant tent with everybody. And I mean, it is nuts to butts. You, you lay your sleeping mat down and you're literally next to another sleeping mat of, of somebody. It was so, it was so packed. And I just remember at that point, Paul Neff hadn't slept for, like 36 hours or something and he because he had he had an issue and um i forget what it was but yeah he hadn't slept he gets there and i i remember him laying down at like six o'clock at night you know and he's laying on this mat everyone else is talking and all of a sudden we hear him snoring and i have a video of it he is he is he he is so tired and we're all just like we're just laughing at it because we know it's been a really long road for him. And, uh, he, his snoring was just really, really funny. And my Danish friend, Thomas. So we were, we were near Paul and we were setting up our stuff and he just goes, Jacob, you need, you need to quiet your friend. Like we're, we're not going to sleep with him snoring. And so we just bust out laughing and we, uh, we ended up letting Paul sleep just because we knew he was tired, but uh, it was just one of the, the small memories that, was really funny about Dakar was listening to Paul, you know, snore. <laughs> well, I mean, I can, I mean, I can imagine. Yeah. He, he had to go at it. It was not an easy, you know, and to get there and do this. So, I mean, it's cool that you guys let him sleep, but I can imagine. Yeah. yeah. And, and like, we know, we know everyone's, I mean, we're tired and we can't, I can't imagine how tired he is. So it's just, it's just an understanding, you know, it's like a brotherhood, you know, at this point, we're all just trying to get through it. We're just, we're all just having a good time. So, uh, no, like I said, it was, some something I remember about Dakar, but um, so yeah, do that. I I had done a spreadsheet mm-hmm. on on the days. You know, they give you info on the stages, mm-hmm. and I basically I took, you know, they tell you the first bike's going to start at whatever, and and the first bike's expected at whatever. Well, I took that info and I basically broke it down into sections. I'm like, all right, you know, this stage is going to take two hours, three hours, yada, yada. And the pattern was all the way up until the rest day, which was after stage eight Mm -hmm. was really, really big days. You know, they were progressively getting bigger. And I think six, seven and eight were the largest and tight, like time on the bike. Um, after the rest day, it was significantly less. We started heading towards the dunes and they were just generally smaller and you're pretty much on the downslope of the Dakar. Mm-hmm. Uh, on stage eight, it was either the second or third longest day. And I remember that day with the rain, we were on the bikes for like 12 or 13 hours. That was, that was a really, really long day. And I remember, and this is why the liaisons are sketchy. I, I, we were coming back to what I think was Riyadh and it, you know, it's a, it's a major city mm-hmm. um, and it's raining and it's, you know, we had a long liaison. It's raining. We're coming in. There was an issue with the road book. 
And I remember just coming in and we're just, you know, we're on the side of the highway. We're, um, we're, we're weaving in and out of traffic and I had never split lanes before. And we're just doing all these, uh, just, just doing all these things that, uh, I don't know. I don't know how I feel about, you know, <laughs> that maybe might be, might be slightly questionable. Yeah. Slightly questionable. And I'm just like, yeah, you know, I kind of had to stop myself and I'm like, all right, like I'm just going to kind of relax here. Like there's no rush on the liaison, but for some reason we're all rushing cause we're trying to get back and, you know, cause we're cold and stuff. But yeah. So after stage eight, I pretty much, little bit of a mindset change i was like at stage eight i was tired mentally i was tired physically i was doing all right you know to everyone physically it's not that bad of a race you know dakar this dakar was one of the hardest in a while i didn't think it was that bad physically Mm -hmm. but mentally it's it's a really 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 tough grind and it's the toughest mental grind i've ever done for sure and that's where they wear you down you know it's just it's just little jabs here and there and they just wear you down. You know, they just grind you. And I was, I was tired mentally, you know, at stage eight, but luckily we had the rest day. My mindset shifted because I had done this spreadsheet and I kind of knew the stages coming up were shorter. And I was like, you know, I was, I was compartmentalizing what I had to do for the next, you know, what it was like six days, I think, mm-hmm. you know, so it just made it more, more di- digestible. Yeah. So, um, you know, rest day, you don't do much. You do laundry. Uh, my team has a washing machine. They service the bikes. You still get up at five thirty in the morning. You know, it's, it's well-deserved, but I kind of personally, I'm like, I'd rather keep going. Um, and you just kind of hang out, you know, and then, um, the, the stages on, we start heading, uh, east towards the empty quarter, which is, uh, just a really, really big open set of sand dunes. And, um, yeah, you know, just, it just starts getting more dunes. The stages get shorter. Um, I started messing with my bike as far as click clicker settings a little bit. Mm-hmm. Uh, I went stiffer, you know, from, from then on my stages got better. I think my best finish was 15th on the second or no, the, the second to last day. Mm-hmm. Um, I had ended up riding with Matthew Dovizi. Uh, we, I don't know. I don't know how we did it, but we were going through the dunes. There was a lot of dune drops. Um, we ended up like looking at each other and giving each other like the, the five kilometer signal where we just held up, you know, like a five or a hand for five, five digits. Mm-hmm. And it just sort of clicked between us that each of us would leave for about five kilometers, you know, taking our dues going off, off the drops first. And it ended up working out for us because that was our best finish, you know, the, the second to last day. And it, that's just because we, uh, we were switching and, you know, just trying to go faster. Yeah. I, you know, I, I, that's kind of curious. And I, I, what do you think it was like when you were following, like, is there a mental fatigue associated with having to take drop after drop after drop when you're, when you're leading? Is that what it is? Yeah. And maybe it was a bit of a break. Yeah. You know, so throughout, I would have thought overall there would have been more dune drops, you know, mm-hmm. in Abu Dhabi, there's a lot, mm-hmm. these dunes, 
and Saudi weren't that bad. It was only a couple of days. Mm-hmm. Um, but yes, you know, it's if you follow somebody, you can kind of. I learned how people were going over dunes if they were if they were gassing it over big dunes, like over the points. Mm-hmm. or they were dropping really fast, like you just learn these things, mm-hmm. you can pretty much close up on them mm-hmm. and it helps tremendously to follow. Um, so yeah, it just, it just gives you a nice break. And like when, when you would, when I would lead, it feels like you're going slow or mm-hmm. I'm sorry, it feels like you're going fast. Mm-hmm. And then when you get behind somebody, it feels like you're going slow. Mm-hmm. So there is a little bit of a change there, but yeah, it definitely, it definitely helps to switch off and like have somebody else lead for you. Yeah, I feel like uh, I feel more than anything, it's like a mental thing. You, uh, you know, once you're if there's a bunch of drops in my mind, I'm thinking, okay, well, each time you hit a drop, it it, there's a question mark. Well, is the next one going to be just as bad or is it not? Or and I feel like it maybe helps tire your mental tire you mentally quicker. And then the pace starts to slow down. And if you're switching off, I feel like, okay, you can now, like you said, you kind of relax a little bit, you know, you're not as tense and, and you're just, you know, you're now you're back to riding again. Yeah. And, you know, and I'm like, obviously I'm trying to go as fast as possible and you kind of, you got to kind of send it off these dunes a little bit. You're pretty much, you're going up wide open up to these dunes, slamming the brakes over the top and jumping, you know, down them and just you know, taking what's on the other side. So if you can have somebody else do that for a little bit, then yeah, it definitely helps. Yeah, man, that's, that, <laughs> that just seems crazy to me. <laughs> uh, yeah. And then I know what happens if you don't, if you don't do it, that means you get stuck at exactly six inches from the top. <laughs> and now yeah. what would have been a two minute dune ride is now a 20 minute adventure to try and get back up the stupid thing. Yeah. God. And you know, yeah, I, I only had that happen. Actually, I got stuck on two dunes. One, because the transition was so steep mm-hmm. that it, I, I just bottomed out going up it and I knew it wasn't going to make it. Mm-hmm. Then the other time is what you're saying. I I forget what I did. I just didn't have enough speed. I'm going over the top and I'm like starting to angle off and I ended up just digging in like six inches before the top. And I'm just like, oh my God. But luckily, I uh, I ended up push you know just holding it wide open and pushing it up over. <laughs> That's crazy, nice. Yeah. But I mean, yeah, it's it's part of the adventure. So okay, so now we're winding it down. Last uh, last part of the the stages. Yeah. So the last day, everyone is really excited. Uh, the morale is very high. You actually start in reverse order. So from the previous day the slowest finisher starts first and it, you know, then it goes backwards. Um, the last day was, was definitely the sketchiest day. It had rained just a little bit and we're by the coast. So the, the terrain is kind of this slippery, mucky kind of, kind of clay mud, like along the beaches. Um, it's a short stage, you know, it's supposed to be kind of ceremonial. Like you just get through it. Not a lot like happens. Mm-hmm. Um, it, I remember there was a speed zone that was 90 kilometers an hour and mm-hmm. I could barely keep the 90. And the reason they had it was just because this road was really, really muddy. Mm-hmm. And that's where you see, if you see in the, the recap videos where people getting stuck and stuff, it was just this, this muddy mess. And I, I remember 
trying to go the speed limit and just going sideways and almost crashing. And I'm like, I have about 30 minutes to go. I'm not going to throw this away. And so I just kind of, kind of took in the scenery, finished the stage and, you know, you get in and everybody's cheering for you, your team's there. And it's just, um, it's, uh, it's a great feeling to finish. I can, I can imagine after, I mean, so many days, the mental fatigue, everything, just a whole sum of emotions and I just everything. And then all of a sudden it's done. Yeah. And you know, I, I was almost, you know, it was, it, it, you have this sense of accomplishment, Mm -hmm. but I was almost a little bummed. I remember the second to last day when I had my good finish, you know, I'm on the liaison, I'm happy. You know, I have a two hour ride time. I'm like, I am so sad. Tomorrow is my last day, mm-hmm. even though I'm mentally tired. Like I have to wait a whole year to do this again. And like I said, you get to the finish line, you're, you feel a sense of accomplishment, but you're, I was almost sad. I'm like, man, I have so much to do. Like I, I'm already thinking about next year and I'm like, get me home. I have so much to do. Yeah. I, you know, it's, we talked about that at, uh, at the end of Sonora and it, it was funny I, when you're there, you don't really think about it, but it's like the, the post rally, it's like the post rally depression, you know, you, Dude. you start thinking about it and you're like, man, I wish, and I'm not even anybody involved with rally afterwards, you know, the experiences, the fun, the everything, the challenges, the mental draining, the times you just wanted to ride off into the sunset, you know, uh, all of these things. And you think there's no way I'm going to miss it. I just want to be home. And then you get home and you're like, Hmm. Yeah. And, you know, I mean, at that point I had nothing planned. I'm like, I know I'm planning to go back to Dakar, but it's like, you spent your, you spent a whole year living and breathing this thing and now it's over. It's like, yeah, Dakar, Dakar after depression is definitely real. And I feel like that's after something major for anybody that has a big goal. You're just like, man, like, what do I do now? But you just gotta, you gotta, for a day or two and then you know plan your next goal and you know get back after it yeah and then you go right back to the grind yeah for sure so after the dakar uh you guys switched switched gears because you knew sonora was coming yeah so um you know i got back from dakar i will say the worst day i had in saudi was the last day I was there. Mm-hmm. So you get done on sun on, I forget it was like Sunday, mm-hmm. you know? And, and if anyone that doesn't know, Saudi is a dry country. So there's no alcohol, um, which, you know, is fine, but it just, the celebration is a little lackluster. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there's no, there's no wild parties after mm-hmm. so that's, that's a little bit of a bummer, but everyone, as soon as you're done, everyone starts packing up you know, cause they got to get their bikes to the containers. They got to get shipments out and stuff. Well, that's all done Sunday. I didn't know, but my team was pretty much leaving Monday morning. Mm-hmm. I ended up leaving Sunday, uh, Monday night with Mo, uh, Wolfie and a couple other people. Mm-hmm. And I pretty much had the whole day in Saudi just by myself. But at that point, like I didn't want to do anything. I just wanted to be home. So I literally, I just laid in the hotel and I didn't do anything, but that was a, that was just a really long day just mm-hmm. hanging out. I wish I had, I had left earlier, yeah. but yeah. So anyways, I get home, I'm on a normal, you know, uh, normal economy seat, which was fine. Whatever. Plane ride is fine. I get home. 
I was trying to regulate my schedule and I went and took my wife's spin class on Tuesday. So I basically got home Monday. Mm-hmm. I took my wife. I'm sorry. I got home Monday and I was going to take my wife's spin class on Wednesday. Sorry. Yeah. I took it and I don't know. I don't know if I didn't realize how tired I was, but basically sent me into a tailspin and I got really, really sick for about a week and a half. I was pretty much on the couch in a bed. I could not move. And I was like, what, what did I just do? And so that is a lesson learned. As soon as you come back from the car, like just don't do a thing. Yeah. And, um, so yeah, uh, Dakar is now done. I'm feeling better. I'm waiting for the team. Uh, they basically came over. Um, they sent three bikes over a bunch of parts and, uh, they landed in California, went up to Portland, grabbed Ace Nielsen's motorhome and trailer. Cause that's where we were going to take mm-hmm. down to Sonora. They grabbed it, came down here. Um, I took Conrad Dabrowski, mm-hmm. uh, around, he rode my wife's 350, showed him all the tracks. He went to, uh, Glen Helen. He went to Paris and he went to, uh, Kauia. Mm-hmm. And so he enjoyed that. We did one day of road books and basically, yeah, got ready and went down to Sonora. <laughs> it's just this like whirlwind of, you know, getting from one rally to another. And I mean, I think, and it was, and it was a few months, but I bet it didn't feel that way either. No, honestly, it came up really quick. And I don't know how the guys follow the world rally championship because I think in a month and a half after Dakar was Abu Dhabi. And I'm like, dude, there's no way I can make Abu Dhabi. Mm-hmm. You know, I hadn't, pl- I hadn't planned for it, but should try to try and do that and then come to the States for, uh, for Sonora was, was hard. And what you're saying, like, yeah, it, the time went so quick in between Dakar and Sonora. Yeah. Was there, um, what did you do? Like prep wise, was there some stuff that you learned, you know, okay, from uh, the Dakar, this is what I need to work on for Sonora. You meant, you mentioned it earlier, right. About, you know, how reading the book road, but like trusting the road book a little more. That was one, but was yeah. there anything else? Um, you know, I didn't have, I didn't have a ton of prep. I took a little bit of time for myself, a little bit of, you know, a little bit of that Dakar depression set. And I was like, man, I, uh, I don't know if I can go through this year again to like, try and get to try and get to Dakar again. And so I I took a little bit of time for myself. Mm -hmm. Um, I, you know, I was still working out and stuff, but I, um, I ended up figuring it out. I did some, some self-help and I decided I was going to race Sonora. And I basically had two days of, of road books, mm-hmm. um, be- between Dakar and Sonora. And actually it was probably the best thing. I, I came into Sonora after, you know, having been to Dakar, I came in really relaxed. I think it was because it was on my home continent. I was just having fun. You know, like I said, I was pretty much alert for my the whole time I was in Dakar and being in like my home continent, just relaxing, having a good time, seeing people. I, I just had a, had a lot more fun. And I think that was the best prep I could have done for Sonora. Okay. Yeah. It's just kind of step away for a minute and yeah. And just, yeah, just take a, get a second look on life and, you know, just come in. I came in, I came in recharged for sure. I was definitely amped to be in Sonora. Nice. 
And so let's talk uh, the stages. I mean, it was, it, they changed, obviously the event changed a little bit being around to the world rally raid championship. Um, and you had been there previously two years before. I remember you were there. Um, I think you ended up finishing it on, I think the last day, right? You were on Mason's bike or the last two days. Yeah. So, bikes. so in 2020 Sonora was my very first rally. Um, so it was cool to do Sonora, Abu Dhabi, Dakar, and then come back to my first rally, Sonora. Uh, the first time I was there, I blew, I had a Calyx 450. Um, I ended up blowing it up in the first like 30K. I was right near the, uh, I don't know what they call it, the post or the, the, the cross that's in oh, the dunes yeah. in Sonora. Kino cross. Uh-huh. Like, yeah, Kino, yeah, Kino cross. I literally blew the bike up right there. So I got, you know, I got rescued. I made my helper, Larry, drive back to Brawley, who met my dad, mm-hmm. who got my spare motor, brought it back to Mexico. We ended up putting it in. I ended up blowing that up the next day because my lack of knowledge on how to jet bikes, I ended up, I jetted it so lean and I didn't, I, I never had to jet bikes. I was like on the bubble of, of carbureted bikes. So I never had to do it. Mm-hmm. So lesson learned. I, Yeah. Blew that motor up. We uh, we drove down to Puerto Penasco, and I think we were just gonna go like explore and like play some golf. Uh, Mason came up and he's like, "You should race my bike." And I'm thinking, "No, like I'm out of the rally. I can't do that." Well, we started thinking about it, and we talked to Darren about it, and uh, they let it ended up letting me race the last two days. So I took one day off, mm-hmm. and then I raced the last two days, but. Thanks to Mason, I those were the only two full days I had, and those were the two best days I could have gotten because the experience was super valuable. And I was like, "Yeah, I like this rally. I think it's fun." And um, I ended up crashing Mason's bike on the very last day, like, like not far from the finish. Broke his tower off, bent the road book holder, like just just <laughs> screwed the whole bike up. So it was a very expensive trip for me to say the least, yeah. but yeah. it was, it was so, sorry, it was so worth it. Cause it. You know, I discovered my love for rally. So it was a very expensive, valuable learning experience. Yeah. Well, I mean, and then I'm, and the memory of it. And I, and you know, it's interesting you say that cause I, I remember, so the, the tower that was on that bike is from uh, Chris at Moto minded. And yes. I know the windshield was broken and the road book hold, but I mean, it went the bike cartwheeled, so it used it as a pogo stick, and I was pretty surprised. I mean, it could have been a lot worse, you know, a lot, you know, really bent out, but it wasn't, I guess, too bad. I think it was just the road book, which I think is the weakest part of that whole thing, is yeah. the actual road book holder itself. Yeah, and you know, oh, again, thank thanks for Mason for letting me use the bike. I I, ended, I had to get some new equipment for him, so I was like, yeah, <laughs> it just yeah. Uh, it was a memory. Yeah. But now here's the, here's the, the question. Cowie, that was your ride. You know, you were always on the Cowies, but I think recently you've switched to Husky. Did that ride have anything to do with it? Cause that was a KTM, right? Um, yeah. So I, Mason's bike was a KTM, you know, I, um, the bike I rode was a 2008 KLX 450. Mm-hmm. What I race here in the States is a, is a current year, kx 450 Ah. so a lot of things are different and the reason i rode that bike was the tranny was wider it's it's similar to a 
like a Honda first gen 450 X, you know, I can get a bigger tank. I can get a four and a half gallon tank so I can make Sonora rally mileage, Mm -hmm. um, wide ratio. And it's just a little bit more durable of a bike. So that's why I was like, you know, I'm going to try that out. You know, I was loyal to Cowie at that point because they were helping me. And I just thought it'd be cool to do a green rally bike. You know, you see all these, uh, Austrian brands. I'm like, you know, it'd be cool to do a green one. Yeah. Something a little bit different. Yeah. And I didn't know any better. And, you know, (laughs) even God, even leading up to, uh, Sonora, I had a handlebar mount and I had ordered the Sonora rally tower. I was going to put on it Mm -hmm. and ended up getting lost in the mail. So I tried to make my own. Yeah. I I ended up trying to make my own tower. The tower broke off a couple days before, like just, just within a couple miles, I was like, yeah, that was, that was a terrible idea. So I ended up just running the handlebar mount, which worked, worked tremendously for all the, for all the things, you know, practice I had done in, in during the race. Yeah. Yeah. That was the, and we were using, that was the, the rally motor shop ones, the, the bar mount setup or what yes. did you use? Yeah. Yeah. And I was like, you know, I was, I was like, I had it at the time. I'm like, yeah, I want a real rally tower. Cause I had never had one. And like, I know the the handlebar mount is like the first step you take. And I just, like I said, I wanted a, a real rally tower. So I was like, not embarrassed, but I, you know, I wanted a full rally bike mm-hmm. or to feel like it, yeah. but going, you know, where I am now, I'm like, I would happily take the handlebar mount cause it's so easy to put on mm-hmm. and it's, I think it's durable. It, wor- it works great. So it's just, uh, you know, change, change in thought and how I view that now. Yeah. Now it's, it's, uh, well, I mean, in that, you know, I have the motor minded tower that I've been working in. That was what I was going to put on my, on my five Oh one. But then I had this like minimalist mind shift and now I'm all about this whole rally light thing, you know, just get something low, compact, easy to take on and off. Yeah. You know, and unless I'm at the point, like, unless, unless you have the real, like the RFR, I love, so my Husky, I went and got a Husky because I wanted to practice for Dakar um, and I wanted something, you know, durable and I wanted uh, just a, a more, a more real rally light bike. This, I love the Sonora tower. It's a little bit cumbersome to put on if you've never, you know, you're drilling into a frame, mm-hmm. but if you're, if you're going to leave that bike as a rally bike, I believe that's the way to go. Mm-hmm. But honestly, if you're just getting into it, uh, the, the handlebar mount is, is pretty awesome too. Yeah, I mean, and it's fairly, it's not that like complicated to put on and it does add a bit of adjustability, you know, depending on your height and that kind of stuff. I, you know, I've, to be honest, I've seen where they, they can kind of come loose or they can rotate or they could do all of this stuff. But, you know, that's, that's me seeing it on guys that are out there. I mean, absolutely just hammering on these bikes. And, and to be honest, that's not the majority of us. I mean, that's something like more for you uh, and some of the other racers that have done it. But even then they help, they hold up pretty well. Yeah. And honestly, I've never, you know, I've heard, I've heard of having or people having their rotate, which I've never had mine rotate, thankfully. And, you know, it just, it just allows you to ride the bike harder and it it acts more like a normal bike, Mm -hmm. which I think is, is something to be considered. Yeah. Yeah. You don't have to deal with the, that was, uh, I'm trying to remember who we were. I was literally just talking about this uh, with somebody and it was that, that consideration, like they were, I'm trying to remember, but it, that was the whole thing. It was like, okay, well, we don't want to necessarily put a rally tower on a bike for a guy that 
is used to racing hair scrambles or is used to racing short, you know, fast sprint races because they're not going to be necessarily used to dealing with, you know, they're going to see some whoops or they're going to see something rough and they're going to charge it, get over the bars. And next thing you know, they've got a, a road book in their face, you know, smash road book, bloody nose, you know, that kind of thing, because they're not used to dealing with a windshield or a rally tower where I think, yeah, having the road book holder on the bars a little lower, a little bit, you know, more compact is probably the best transition. Yeah. And, you know, uh, that's the thing, too, is without a tower or anything, the normal what I would consider the normal style in desert racing, like is very Dan- Danny Hamill here in the States. Like you lean over the front. I do that. Mm-hmm. But when you get on the rally bike, what you're saying, yeah, you can't lean over as much or if you hit something or whatever. Yeah. You can get a, a road book to the face, which I've done, which is something definitely to consider. And yeah, you know, our train, like I said, many times is just rougher here. So it's, it's nice to have a more enduro bike. And, you know, we're talking about, the rally light build. I almost feel like with the handlebar or something even smaller, it's like a rally light, light bike. Mm-hmm. You know, there's like three, there's like the full rally bike, there's a rally light. And then there's like an enduro rally bike, you know? Mm-hmm. And, uh, and, and, and mm-hmm. I, I feel I like we need to come up with a name for that. <laughs> we, yeah. I feel like I, yeah, I, uh, I like the rally light. Yeah. Cause it's, I feel like that's widely known and, and that describes it pretty well. And, you know, the thing too is road books are, are, they're becoming easier to get here, mm-hmm. but they're not, they're not super easy to get. And the thing is, unless, unless you have a RFR with nine gallons of fuel, most of the bikes are three to five gallons. So having you know, you don't need these big, long road books mm-hmm. or, or trying to get road books that are shorter for these smaller tanks. I just, yeah, there's just so many different facets, like a rally here in the States, I guess it was what I'm getting at. Yeah, no, exactly. And I mean, and, and we have, which is, which is really interesting, right? You, you, that you mentioned that is I did see and hear or was party to a few aha moments of things that get done in rally here that don't get done elsewhere. And I think that comes from the, you know, just the terrain and the racing culture here is very different when you go, you know, across the world. And so I, I, I agree with you. And that's an idea that I've kind of been toying with is, um, you know, the average hair scramble bike is built with a three gallon tank, right? I mean, it's made to go 80 miles at race pace. And I'm like, well, it's easy enough to do a hundred kilometer road book. You know, that's and you get a hundred kilometer road book and then you get a basic, you know, setup that can be bolted on and off of the bike, even battery powered. You know, you don't even have to wire it to the bike. And now you could literally go anywhere, throw this on somebody's bike and they'll be out for an hour or two ride a road book. Yeah. And honestly, leading up to Dakar, I I was on my KLX and I was on the Husky bikes. I had um like four, four to four and a half gallons on each bike. So honestly, my road books were all like 90 to like 130. So that way I could get lost. I didn't have to worry about fuel. I could have somebody come with me, you know, just to follow me, just in, you know, yeah. so I'm not out there by myself. And, um, yeah. And they didn't need yeah. to have 10 gallons of gas. You didn't need to hire a, a chase crew to meet you halfway or, <laughs> you know, you yeah, you know, it's just, uh, 
yeah, we just, I mean, like you said, we do things here a little bit different. I, th- I know that's what's cool about rally. You can do a lot of different, you know, things to ways to do it. There's different ways to skin a cat. Yep. Yep. And then, so, okay. So Sonora rally this year stages. What was the, what do you think? What I mean, there was a big difference, right? Not going to the dunes this time the the big dunes. Yeah. Um, I like, I was having a great time in Sonora. The stages were awesome. Uh, really, really pretty scenery, you know, uh, a little bit of creosote bush. Like I'm here, I'm used to in the state, uh, in the California desert, a little bit of like the Arizona style with big cactus. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I was a little bummed not to go to the dunes. I, I mean, I could do one big day of dunes and be fine, mm-hmm. but to really not have any was kind of bumming. Um, and actually the only section of, I guess, real dunes we had, I was, I was riding with Mason. Mm-hmm. Um, that was the day, day three. No, was it day three? So whatever day, was the issue with the road book. Mm-hmm. I, um, I was riding with Mason and I let him lead out from the gas stop mm-hmm. and we got to the dunes and I'm following him. And I'm like, I feel like I can pull us along faster. Mm-hmm. So, uh, I kind of, I ended up passing him and I ended up, you know, charging and I'm like, all right, like I'm going to, I'm going to lead us here and I'm going to make up time. Well, I ended up focusing too much on my riding and I blew right past the waypoint by like, half a kilometer and i was like oh my god you idiot and so mason ended up passing me back and then i couldn't catch him from there yeah (laughs) so Uh, lesson learned yeah no and there was that that was what i did here and i and i know some of the background to it and unfortunately there was uh local politics involved in the reason why they couldn't go to the dunes um but the i did hear that the dunes there were the dune section you did get to run was choppier and just not flowy. And just, it was, it was a bit of a handful. Yeah. I mean, they were all like, you know, maybe 10, 10 to 15 feet tall dunes. And like, you're just jumping them. And you know, there's a, there's a way the wind blows mm-hmm. the dunes. And we were basically jumping off the backsides and it was very, uh, very choppy and what you're saying rough. And I was like, yeah, I feel good here. Like I, I felt confident on the rally bike. I'm having fun. So I'm just jumping off the dunes, casing everything, feeling good. And then missing a waypoint. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's all, that's how it happens. And that's, that's why it's the mental game. And that's why it's everywhere. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, actually that, uh, that, that set something off in me. Cause after I, I went back, got the waypoint, I rode like an angry schoolgirl, and, uh, <laughs> but I was on point. I was like, yeah. I feel like, I feel like I'm going as fast as I can ride mm-hmm. and fast or my navigation matches my riding speed is I guess what I'm getting at. Yeah. Which I mean, isn't, which is important. I think a lot of people, you know, if, if you're getting into rally, it's like, there's a, there's a strong definition between the two. You're either going to be really good at riding or you're going to be really good at navigating. And, and it takes a while to get both. If you're a really fast rider, at least from what I've seen, you could be a really fast rider, but it takes more time to slow down and, and to learn when to navigate. And, or you're a really good navigator. You never miss a waypoint, but in the sections where it's go time, there's no time made up. There's no nothing. If anything, there's time lost. Uh, Yeah. And, and, you know, um, you know, enduro racing, Baja racing, national herd hound, I typically, or at least I don't, I don't really think 
Like you, you think, but you're just in the zone. You're not really, you're in the flow state mm-hmm. and, and you're just going in rally or at least I haven't experienced it. I'm not, I'm not in the flow state. I'm focused on making sure I hit the navigation and, and trying to ride. Mm-hmm. The only time I guess I did was when I rode like an angry schoolgirl, And, you know, after I lost the waypoint mm-hmm. was when I, I just didn't think I was able to just feel the navigation. Mm-hmm. So yeah, it's like, you got to do both. Like that's, but that's what makes a really good rally racer, you know, the ability to, to, to ride like you're not thinking, mm-hmm. but then navigate like you're not thinking as well. Like you're just feeling the navigation and both are merging perfectly to create, you know, top speed. Yeah. Which, which is, you know, I, that is an interesting thing. Cause I mean, to me, like, you know, getting into rally and doing this and, and really just starting on the roadbook journeys and, and doing that, the, that, you know, I know my riding ability isn't, you know, where it needs to be. I still have to think about riding. It's tough to get into that state where I'm not thinking anymore, you know, where I'm not nervous in the corners, where I'm not nervous in the rough, you know, the whoops and stuff like that. And, and so there's one, one mental aspect of it, right? Because a lot of that is mental because once you get to the point where you're confident in your riding ability, you stop thinking about it. And now you have a hundred percent brain power for navigating. Yeah. And so it, that's, it's an interesting, you know, how you say it. And so it's then, then it becomes, which one is more important. And I don't know if in rally it's, you know, like we said, you could be the fastest rider and you'll blow right by the waypoint and, yeah. or you'd be the best navigator and everybody blows by you on the way to the waypoint. Yeah. yeah you know, I think it's both in like going back to Dakar, mm-hmm. I it's, oh man, you know, there's a speed limit. Mm-hmm. I, I forgive it. I think it's 160 kilometers 160. an hour. I, I, yeah, I should know this, but in Dakar, you're doing 130, 140, and it's like it's sandy. You're going up a slight grade, and one of the things I, I'm working on for next year is a is a bigger motor, not a bigger motor, but the the factory motor because I'm I remember being passed by people, and I'm just going up these slight grades you know, doing about 130 and they're doing 140, 150 and not having the horsepower and, and no excuses, mm-hmm. not, not having the horsepower and just losing little bits of time, I think is a big part of rally too. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I, I hate to say it's a little bit of a, of a numbers game for, for horsepower, but it, it, it's, it, it is a little bit. And I think that helps, you know, make up time as well. Yeah. Well, I mean, no. And I mean, I think that that is definitely spot on. I mean, this was something that was said, you know, post Sonora rally um, that there's I think it was Skylar that, that kind of mentioned it. But you you can't check up. You mentioned this earlier, the, a simple checkup. One second. OK, the Dakar going into the last stage was what, five seconds between the leaders? Yeah, so some really, really close number. Some just stupid. I mean, okay, check up five times. Good. I dare you to ride two hundred miles and not check up five times. Yeah, <laughs> you know? I, I, it's yeah. like it's crazy. You know. Yeah, just just those little things add up. Yeah, and it's has, but I mean, it's you know, and it's part of the experience. And yeah, I mean, I I can, uh, I mean, from racing off road cars, I've seen that before. One's got just the right gearing, the right setup, and you're going up the sand wash, and they're just like barely walking over. It's one thing when they blow by you. It's another one when they're just kind of tiptoeing away. 
just crawling away yeah. at this really stupidly slow speed that is annoying as hell because you're trying to think like, okay, what do I need? Do I need to keep clutching this thing? Do I need it? What do I need to do? This is stupid. How are they barely yeah. walking away? <laughs> yeah. And it's like, I remember riding with, uh, Dumontier, mm-hmm. you know, before we, before we got to, um, the guy that was injured, I'm like, we're going across these open deserts and I didn't know who he was at this point. You know, mm-hmm. I, I only, I mean, I know of these people, but mm-hmm. I, I have no gauge like at their speed. And I'm like, I'm, I'm going balls to the walls. Like I am tucked, you know, trying to stretch the throttle cable and I'm like barely keeping up with this guy. And I'm like, who, who are these people? And, and, uh, it's just, it was a nice feeling to have that. I know, I know in the States I'm a pretty quick guy, but to go over there and be like, not not sure if you can keep up and you know i got my ass handed to me a little bit it's just a nice feeling to race with people like that to keep progressing and yeah yeah and i mean and that's you know like you said but now now you have the there's no way you would have a list of things to work on now if you hadn't gone the first time so yeah 100%. now it's now it's just a, a bit more focused and and i mean speaking of which like what you know can you share some of that like all right what are the you mentioned now like a you know the motor side of things, you know, working on that, um, it, yeah. is physical health, uh, um, road book stuff. I mean, what, what are you working on? Um, so I'm working on a motor, mm-hmm. uh, that, that will be number one. Number two will will to be to get, I don't know what to call it. Some, some bikes have the GPS speed zone limiter. Oh yeah. Um, that's another thing, you know, um, they don't, I mean, what you don't know is there's a lot of speed zones mm-hmm. in rally, especially at the Dakar. Mm-hmm. And if you're going, you know, half a kilometer to two kilometers at a 30 kilometer an hour speed zone, if you're not going at 29, you're losing time. Mm-hmm. And if you do that, you know, three, four five times, all the time you made up on somebody can be lost. Yeah. And, you know, one of the, th- another thing about rally is like, especially at Sonora, Mm -hmm. I learned as soon as you hit the speed zone, I am literally not looking at the trail. I'm only looking at my speed and making sure it's one to two miles or kilometers per hour below the speed limit. And I'm barely looking out of the foresight of my eye at the trail. Like Mm -hmm. I'm not even looking at the road bike. I'm just following the trail, trying to go as close as I can to the speed limit. And then looking at the meters counting down. And as soon as I, you know, as soon as I hit the, the, the waypoint to go back to, you know, normal racing, then it's wide open. Mm-hmm. But that's something, you know, no one tells you is like, you can lose a lot of time in the speed zone. And if you go too fast, you know, you get a penalty. Oh yeah. No, it, you can lose. It, it's, it's yours to lose. You either lose time obeying and being too cautious or you lose time by just saying, screw it. And, and I did, I did hear some stuff about, you know, certain, I think, and it really, it's more the fly by wire bikes that they have the ability to limit the speed. Like if it was cruise control. Yeah. And I mean, it, you know, yeah, it, it sucks. I mean, you still got to be on it, but you know, there's that. And then I've also heard that the way that the speed zones start, you know, with the, with the rally comp, it's different. It's a, there's a, a line in the sand and the way, and it starts there instantly um you know you have i believe it's a two second buffer which i mean Mm -hmm. you got to be on point a two second buffer is nothing so if you come in hot you came in hot and there's no way 
you know, it'll catch you. But if you're like one kilometer over, okay, you'll, you know, you could probably still save it. But my understanding is that with the ERTF units, it's like the start of the speed zone plus a hundred meters or something like that. So, or something weird where I've heard that, yeah, the name of the game is you got to judge the distance and then charge it because if you're not, the next guy is. Yeah. So when you come in, you know, it's hard to explain. Even it is one of the things I need to know better is when you come in and you hit the center of the start of the, the speed zone, you have a, I don't want, I don't want to call it a grace period, but what you're saying you have, it's either 90, I think it is um, 90 meters to, to slow down and you'll see skid marks. And that's another indicator is you're, you know, you're going wide open. And if you start seeing skid marks, you better hit the brakes. Yeah. And that's another, <laughs> that's another place you can lose time yeah. is, is which I, which I did in Dakar. I was slowing down way too early, like, mm-hmm. like one to 200 uh, meters before, before the speed zone, because I didn't have a full understanding or gauging distance, like where the speed zone started. But, you know, doing that over and over adds up to lost time. Yeah. And it's just something, something in your control that you can work on. And yeah, so now I have a little bit of a system and, uh, I think it's, I think it's getting better. And that's one of the things I'm actually going to work on is I'm going to make a uh, speed zone road books. I'm, I'm kind of experimenting where I'll make just a simple straight, you know, maybe a, like an oval or something, you know, road book, simple, simple navigation, but I'll do speed zones. And I'll place them at different sections and practice, you know, stopping at the very last second and just becoming more confident at, at that aspect of it. Yeah. Ro- roping the bike in. And I guess I get, you know, for, for those playing the home game that, you know, if we're talking the same thing, it's when the light turns red, there's people that as soon as the light turns red, no matter how far away they are from the line, they just let off. And then there's people that, <laughs> Okay, there's the limit line. I just need to be stopped by the time I get to the limit line. So they'll just keep going 60 miles an hour right up to the red light and then get on the brakes on the last minute. Yeah, and it's, yeah, <laughs> that's I mean, the two types of people. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. And I'm I'm on, you know, the latter end of the spectrum trying to squeeze every last second out of it. And um so yeah, I'm going to work on I'm going to work on that. That's something I can control. Um better motor uh, you know, I, I made a bunch of road books last year. I'd only been to Abu Dhabi, which was all dunes, not a lot of tracks. Mm-hmm. I, I hadn't never seen a Dakar road book. Um, so I was making road books off what I saw. I literally would look up Google images of, of Dakar road books and try to make road books off of it, mm-hmm. off of those photos. And so now having been to Dakar, I have a better understanding of how they, you know, make road books um, and after having learned about verifying road books and, you know, putting in dangers and not letting off, mm-hmm. I'm gonna, I'm trying to figure out if I have someone, maybe NAR or maybe my friend Larry go verify road books for me and put in dangers and then I'll add them just so I can go a little bit faster, practice that aspect, um, practice, you know, navigation drills, what I was saying earlier, a little bit of Jimmy Lewis stuff, you know, that's, that's my weakest point. Mm-hmm. Um, my road books that I use for my practice are very, they're very navigation heavy. They're the notes are not very far apart. Um, I do it because I struggle with what I was saying earlier. Like I would go 
wide open and I missed the waypoint. So I'm trying to overload myself with notes. Like I don't need to ride a ton. Mm-hmm. Um, I just need to do a lot of heavy navigation. So yeah, I'm going to work on some more heavy navigation stuff, work on speed zones. I felt pretty good on my physical prep. You know, I'm, I'm young, like I'm pretty well in shape. I could have been a little bit better riding shape because I was fundraising. So I'm working on fundraising and, and trying to finish that up earlier. Mm-hmm. Cause I was, I was getting the last of the money pretty much the week leading up to the race. Mm-hmm. So, you know, working out and like being physically ready was kind of on the back burner. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm going to work on that a little bit more. You know, I, I packed pretty well. I ended up taking four gear bags over and four back. I'm going to take a little bit less stuff over. Um, my nutrition, everything was good. There's a little bit less I have to do. Like I don't have to get my motorcycle license. I don't have to do certain things so that like that should be easier. But honestly, just, um, motor, try and get a, a, the speed zone limiter, practice some nav stuff here. Mm -hmm. And, um, just go, just go faster. And actually another thing is I'm going to try to be more relaxed. Like I, like I said before, I was really alert, kind of just, you know, on call the whole time. And when I went to Sonora, I was just having fun. I'm going to try to have more fun there, you know, just relax and, um, you know, enjoy it more. Yeah. Which, I mean, that's, uh, it, I get, you know, I'm trying to think, right? Like, you know, rewinding back to what you were saying about the Dakar and, and, you know, you show up the first day and there's just such as visual overload. And especially when, like, if you're not a racer and you're not somebody that likes, you know, the motorsport of rally or desert racing, then you show up and it's, oh yeah, cool. It's just a bunch of tents and people everywhere. But when you are, you know, you're looking at the setup, you're looking how the pits look, you're looking at, you know, what are they doing? You know, there's just so much to see. And I mean, it's like, I, it almost feels like, okay, well, if I'm going to race this, maybe I should just go once as support crew. And then the next time go, you know, as, as a racer or something, you know, to get over that, that shock of just everything that's there. Yeah. And, you know, and actually my team has a, has a service truck, which mm-hmm. is, you know, a garbage truck size. And I had never seen it before. Mm-hmm. So like, they also had a motor home and another truck. So they have, you know, these, these big vehicles that I'd never seen. I'm like, Oh yeah. Like I get to stay in this. This is awesome. You yeah. know? So it's just something to add on to that. And actually I can't believe I forgot. I need to do a little bit of, um, bike testing. So I need to do a little bit of suspension testing cause I've never done it. Mm-hmm. The dust bikes are here. They're allowing me to take one out, do some suspension testing, try some parts out that I want to try. Mm-hmm. And, um, I'm actually, I'm actually going to take the bike apart all the way to the frame and put it back together Okay. because you know, like the gas, gas tank incident, I, I never taken the gas tanks off. Mm-hmm. That, that's something that's not that difficult, but it's difficult being your first time. And so I'm like, I, I should take the bike part at least once, put it back together and just understand how things work, you know, just in case there's issues. Um, and I, that's something I'd like to do. And I'm taking the time that I have the bikes here to do that. And I also would like to, so on the the RFR, there's a little bit of a toolkit. Mm-hmm. Um, I would like to organize that and make it my own 
um, and just make the certain tool that I want and just know exactly what I have. Not that, not that there wasn't stuff cause I had everything I needed. I just want to know exactly what I have and make it more familiar to me, you know, for when I go over and that way, if there's an issue, I know the bike, I know what tools I have and I'm, you know, ready to address the situation. Yeah, no, absolutely. And I mean, and, and the, even find the, the shortcuts, right. You know, I'm thinking like when we were talking about transferring fuel earlier, I'm thinking like the stuff from like, what is, I think taco moto has that kit where you can like directly power the fuel pump and then it's got like a quick release. So you could basically like siphon your own fuel from one tank to the other and not actually even have to unmount the tank. You just literally like, okay, well, as long as the fuel pump's good and I can connect directly to it and you know, we're, we're getting fuel out of this thing and into another, you know, yeah, like all those little things that you, I mean, like you said, you didn't have time with the bike to be able to figure it out. Yeah. And that's something, you know, I can do now. And you're right. Like I, if I, if I had been quicker on my fuel tank, you know, issue, I, I would have maybe made past the checkpoint where they cut off for the day, which would have, which would have given me a lot better finish. Cause I ended up finishing like 55th, mm-hmm. but that time, that time was really valuable because I could have finished in the top 20 because mm-hmm. I ended up finishing 22nd, but you know, finishing in the top 20 would have been a lot better for me. And, yeah. but you know, it's all in hindsight and like, you know, you live and learn and take, take advantage of the time you have now. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and, and especially having the bike, you know, at your disposal to be able to pick up on these things and learn on these things. It's it, um, you know, it, it all makes for a better recipe, you know, in the end and putting the whole program together, you know, it, it eliminates a lot of the unknowns. Yeah, exactly. Nice. Well, awesome. So you've got a busy race schedule too. you you do a lot with the, the local races stuff. What's next for you there? You know, trying to figure it out. I, you know, we're on summer break now. Um, I was thinking about racing Vegas Drano. I'm not totally sure yet. Mm-hmm. Um, it just depends on how everything goes. It's, I've never, I've never done an event like Dakar where you literally spend the whole year preparing. So it's kind of new to me. Mm-hmm. So I'm kind of adjusting to that because, you know, I used to race a lot before Dakar and stuff and it's kind of where my life's going. It's kind of changing a bit and, you know, I really want to do well at Dakar. So I'm definitely cutting back and focusing on that. So maybe, maybe Vegas Torino. Um, if I can find a bike or if the bikes are still here, I'd like to do Baja rally. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I would love to do the world rallies, but it's just, it's just too much funding. And, you know, Baja rally seems like a, like a cool event. I've never done it. seems like it would be fun to do. You know, if I have the means, like I would like to do that, but basically, yeah, I'm just, um, focused, focus on getting ready for Dakar next year. Yeah. Nice. Well, yeah. And I mean, it is, it is literally a whole year's effort to get there. Yeah. And like, you know, some people take some two or three years, which at first I was like, I don't know how you could spend that much time, but you know, after having gone to Dakar, I understand it now and it makes more sense. And, you know, I'm going to try and, um, you know, we talked about it earlier, uh, me and Dusko are going to, um, uh, start doing some rally training here for a bit. Mm-hmm. And so, uh, some more info should be coming out soon on that. Nice. And yeah, just making road books, having fun, being better prepared and going for Dakar again. Nice. Yeah, that's good. I mean, you know, good development program. You already know what it's going to take. You know, it sounds like you got a pretty good recipe going and, and then especially yeah, having the, the ability to help, you know, train some people, get some people into the, 
fold them into the fold or, or get them, get them hooked. Yeah, no, exactly. Very nice. Well, awesome. Well, it's Friday. I will let, uh, I'll let you get to it. But, uh, but yeah, I mean, anything in, in closing, any shout outs, anybody we want to. Well, I first, uh, like to thank the Desco team. You know, they've, uh, they were, they've supported me from the beginning when I went to Abu Dhabi and I've stuck with them and we've formed a nice little team. Um, and I like where it's going. We're, we're having fun. Um, they're actually supposed to come back in August to do a little bit of training before they head to uh route of 40. So that'd be cool. Um, uh, you know, Ace Nielsen at high desert adventures, they took care of us at, at Sonora rally. We were working together. Um, you know, he's been a great supporter of mine and riding buddy and, um, you know, big thanks to him. It was awesome to share Dakar with him. I, it was only him and my friend Larry that came to Dakar as far as like people in my camp. Mm-hmm. So it's a really cool experience to share it with him. I know, you know, he ended up crashing and not finishing. Um, but it was still a really fun experience to share it with him. And, you know, I thank him a lot and you know, all my, all my supporters and people that came to my fundraising, bought a t-shirt, you know, did rally training with me last year at the Heron Hounds and, um, you know, just, just helped me get there. And, uh, no, I, I appreciate all of them and, and yeah. Nice. Good. Well, yeah. And I mean, we'll, yeah. uh, keep up with your, with your program, see how it, how it develops. You were going to say, Oh, I was going to say, and you know, thanks to chasing waypoints for having me on here. You know, I, I've been an avid listener from the start. Nice. I appreciate that. And yeah, it was kind of, it was kind of cool. It was the first time I did any of that, like having mics on me at, at an event. So it was cool. I appreciate you <laughs> taking the time, even though I just like threw the microphone basically at you. <laughs> yeah, but that's it works well, you know, imp- yeah. impromptu, but I, I think it worked well. Yeah. Yeah. That, and that's the whole thing. I mean, I, I, you know, I, I was actually talking to a friend about it the other day and they're like, Oh, so how do you do the interviews? And I'm going, uh, I call somebody on the phone and then we just talk. <laughs> yeah. You don't prep. No. <laughs> Cause then it takes away from it. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. But awesome. 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 So no racing this weekend, just chilling. Just chilling. You know, actually I was going <laughs> to, I was going to put knobby tires on the rally bike or at least the rear. And I was going to go to Glen Helen for the first time. I wanted to, you know, I, I raced a, I raced a, a race here in the States, which I wanted to do. Now I want to take it to a motocross track and try the, the rally bike out. So yeah, I'm going to put some Navi tires on and go, go try it at Glen Helen this weekend and go, see how she, how go play around now. Uh, that's just on the track or do they open up the GP side where you can go out a little ways? Oh no, full moto, okay. just moto for me. Got it. I'm, I'm going to fill it full of tanks. I'm going to drain both of them. That's my goal. All right. <laughs> and then nine, what does that thing hold? Nine gallons or something like that? Yeah. Nine gallons. <laughs> oh, she going to be heavy. <laughs> yeah. She, but that's the thing too. Like I wanted, I got to learn that because there's certain ways to drain the tanks and I'm not sure which way I like. Cause if you drain one tank, you know, it affects the handling. If you drain the other, it affects the handling. So it's like, I want to start full and just, you know, just try, try certain things. Yeah. Yeah, which is it's crazy that you actually have that 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 is actually a thing. But I mean, just like shifting your weight back and forth on a bike is so is what tank you drain first. It's like what helps you more. Yeah, and there's certain ways to do it. Like people people do it differently for dunes, and like uh, I'm just I'm not sure. But yeah, there, I mean, there's yeah, there's ways to do it, and you know, it's got to find what's best for you. Yeah, for sure. 
Well, awesome. Well, I'll look for the uh, I'll look for the posts and uh, have some fun out there at Glen Helen, and, uh, and we'll yeah. talk to you soon. All right. Well, thanks for having me. Victor. Awesome. Yeah. Thanks. Thanks, sir. Bye. All right. So there you have it. That was Jacob Argybright. And that is awesome. You know, that that's kind of one of the things right after the Dakar, you think like when they do it once, like, are they going to go back? You know, it's such a big undertaking, a huge undertaking. And like you kind of heard, you know, the estimate is about 75 K, um, you know, can you put a price on the dream? you know, of, of going and doing that. I mean, no, it's, it's definitely something that's, um, you have to consider, right. And then there's huge sacrifices and huge things going and, you know, sponsors and everything. And it, it, it is not easy. I mean, it is definitely not easy, uh, by any means. So I'm glad to hear that he is working on going back, uh, you know, a racer at heart, right. You know, he's always, he's very competitive out in the hair scramble scene and, and, and anything he races. So, Seeing that, seeing him wanting to do that, you know, as he was talking about getting the bike, taking it apart, making sure, you know, he knows the bike and knows all of these things. And I mean, we talked about it, right? You know, when the Dakar on the last stage is a, a game of seconds, um, you know, you think about like 20 minutes here, 20 minutes there at the back of the pack is still the same thing. You know, the the gaps of time that are lost and the things that occur, uh, you know, a, a 20 minute or a five minute deficit at the back of the pack is a huge deal, just like a few seconds is at the front of the pack. So a lot of that, anything you can do to better your chances, anything you can do to like really like increase your game. And like I said, I mean, it, it, you know, getting into the flow state and being able to ride without thinking, being able to navigate without thinking, it's, it's just the whole thing. Some people can navigate without thinking and some people can ride without thinking, but putting both of them together and getting into that locked in state uh, is absolutely crazy. You know, it's not something that, uh, that comes, you know, within the first couple of years, I would think, um, it, the big thing is, is just riding and, and getting navigation in and, and just doing that stuff. So I'm working on a few projects We you know, we've been talking about this for a while. I've been doing some recording and some things, and I'm, I'm hoping to release some stuff here soon, uh, for you guys. And for those of you that are interested in listening worldwide, uh, I, I really appreciate it. We've got some stuff coming that are going to help you guys get into rally, uh, make it easier for the transition from going from where you're at now. Uh, and, and just getting behind your first road book. So I'm absolutely excited about it. I've got two bikes that I got to work on. So I'm going to get to that today. Again, it's Friday, but you guys will be hearing this in a couple of days on Sunday. Uh, so yeah, so feel free to reach out, send me a direct message. If you got any questions on Instagram, I'll continue to reach out to these guests and get some people. I've got a few questions already that I got to work on getting answered. Uh, but I'm absolutely looking forward to it. And get more, uh, get more content, get more episodes. We've got a, a list that's starting to develop with future guests. So I'm really excited about that as well. So anyway, with that being said, guys, remember, it'll make sense when you get there. Enjoy the ride. All right, that is a wrap for the Chasing Waypoints podcast this week. Hope you guys enjoyed the show. Don't forget to like and subscribe if you like what you heard. We are available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and a bunch of others. Also, follow us on social media. You can find us on Facebook under Chasing Waypoints, Instagram, Chasing Waypoints underscore official, and of course, the YouTube under Chasing Waypoints. Hope everybody has a good week. We will see you guys for the next episode. Remember, shiny side up, and don't forget to tag us. 
We want to see where you guys are riding and what you guys are up to. Have a great week.